0: If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you and encourage you this morning to open uh, with me to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11. And again, Bibles in the back, Uh, the bulletin also contains the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. We're almost through uh, our study of this Old Testament prophet, and I pray that uh, these past Uh, 10 weeks or so that we have been in it. I pray that it has taught us. Certainly, I pray that it has challenged us. I pray that uh, this book has encouraged us as we seek to be faithful to our God in a land that is not our home, much like the people that Daniel originally was with and wrote to and received these visions. If you were here last week, you might remember that we opened up uh, the last vision uh, that Daniel is to receive and at least record for us through the Holy Scriptures. It's a vision that encompasses three chapters, chapters 10, chapters 11, and chapters 12. And so last week we went a bit behind the scenes uh, at the unseen power struggle uh, that goes on amazingly enough carried by the earthly prayers of God's people. And I truly hope that this past week, as you have gone to the Lord in prayer, as you have humbled yourself before your God, that you have thought differently about your prayers and about what they are accomplishing, about what is going on around them as your prayers connect with cosmic conflict I hope it's made you more confident in your praying. I hope it's made you needier in your praying. Well, today we get to the heart of the vision that last week we just uh, introduced, uh, the heart of the vision that's delivered to Daniel, and it's a vision of messy human history. Messy human history that for Daniel is still to come, that for us is something we look back at. As I began studying this passage this week and uh, reading and thinking about uh, how to proclaim it this morning, I read this statement in one of the commentaries that I opened up. This chapter might be treated in Bible classes, but we do not see how it could be used for a sermon. And I thought to myself, great, thank you. That is a wonderful way to start my week It is indeed a difficult passage to think about preaching. It's a difficult and long passage, but it is God's Word. And as you preach through books, you can't get away from the next passage. And so it is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for rebuke, reproof, excuse me. Uh, for correction and training in righteousness. So, as I read, I invite you, if you are able, to stand. It is a long passage, so if you need to remain seated, please go ahead and do that. But if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. We're not going to read, I'm not going to read the entirety of chapter 11, uh, but starting at verse 2 where we left off last week, we're going to continue down through verse 35 this morning. Verse 35, Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, through verse 35. Listen as I read, "...and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth king shall be richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece." Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills, and as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided among the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority in which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he And shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. And after some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, From her roots one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land." His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail." For the king of the north shall rise again, a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and her abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the kings of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to confirm the vision, but they shall fail Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes up against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him, Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, and he shall stumble and fall, and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries." "'Armies shall be utterly swept away before him "'and broken, even the prince of the covenant. "'And from the time that an alliance is made with him, "'he shall act deceitfully, "'and he shall become strong with the small people. "'Without warning, he shall come "'into the richest parts of the province, "'and he shall do what neither his fathers "'nor his father's fathers have done, "'scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. "'He shall devise plans against strongholds, "'but only for a time, and he shall stir up his power.' And his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed." And he shall return to his land with great wealth, and his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south." but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Katim shall come against him, and it, he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsook the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the ab- abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. Until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I want to begin as I often do with a question. How do you view human history? How do you view human history. I have a book on my shelf entitled, A Patriot's History of the United States. Perhaps some of you have read it. I haven't yet read it, but according to its back cover, it's a book meant to counter the view of American history that the authors say most mainstream textbooks teach, that our nation's past is a tale of of racism, of sexism, and bigotry, The very successful and popular Broadway musical, Hamilton, was in town this week. Some of you went to see it. Others of us just wanted to go. But it's taught a whole generation a perspective on this particular founding father and the circumstances surrounding his life. Much larger than our nation's history it's just simply inescapable that the way we view the world, the way we view the past is determined by a number, of our fa- a number of factors, whether it be our experience, whether it be our view of God, our view of man, and a host of other presuppositions. We see it with present-day reporting, present-day media You get a very different perspective depending on whether you turn on Fox News or depending on whether you turn on CNN. This morning as we turn to Daniel chapter 11, what we get, other than a long passage, I know, thanks for bearing with me, what we get is messy, beastly, human history, but from God's perspective. You remember, those of you who have been around, that back in chapter 7, that was the way the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms and empires were, were described, were presented to Daniel in vivid, beastly imagery. And here in chapter 11, some of that same history overlaps with stuff we've already heard about in vivid form. For us, it's past. It's history, ancient history. But for Daniel… And the people of Daniel's day, what Daniel receives here, is still very much to come. And like I mentioned back in chapter 7, because of the accurate detail that this vision contains, critics of God's Word, critics of the Bible like to jump all over this and say, there is no way that Daniel received this when he did. There is no way that Daniel could know all of this detail. It must have been inserted later. We don't have time to go into all of the textual criticism, not just simply because it's complicated and we don't have time, but also because we're not here to question the truth of God's Word. Our God is able… And he did reveal this to his servant. And he did preserve this by his Holy Spirit. And as verse 2 states, he did reveal the truth. And now I will show you the truth. And that's what I think this account is here to show us to show God's people. I think it's here to show us the truth. The world as God sees it. The world as Yahweh sees it. The world as Yahweh wants His people, both His ancient people, the Jewish people, and the church to see history. As we jump back into the story, you might remember that the optimism that it accompanied Cyrus's decree to go, yes, Jews, go, return to your homeland, return to the land of promise and begin to rebuild. That optimism had now turned into to deep discouragement. Remember, this is why Daniel prayed. This is the answer to that prayer of discouragement or that prayer out of discouragement that Daniel cried out to the Lord. Opposition and, and struggle and obstacle After obstacle, we're facing God's people in Jerusalem and in the promised land. You see, I think they needed to be reminded of this the truth about history. For them, about what was to come. For us, about what has already occurred. And indeed, what is still waiting for us. Two truths that I'd like us to be guided by for these next few minutes. And the first one is this. God's view of history is without surprises. God's view of history is without surprises. Nobody likes surprises unless they're pregnancies or presents or parties. And with our God, there is none. There are none. And that ought to mean a lot to His people. That in human history, in every experience that we face, there are no surprises to our God. This entire chapter can really be summarized quite succinctly Let me give the historical summation of these verses. Roughly between the years 530 and 164 BC, various regional powers, ancient regional powers, will vie for dominance. And when the dust settles, two will remain in the north, the Seleucid dynasty, and in the south, the Ptolemy dynasty. And for the last 200 years of that historical window, these two empires will wrestle for full control, and God's people in the land of promise, in the land of Palestine, will be caught in between. There it is. That's it. And I'm not minimizing the significance of the events or of the period. I'm simply stating that the whole chapter could have been told… To Daniel in a much more succinct fashion. And yet the Lord chooses to reveal this detailed, elaborate account where we learn very specific historical facts. And I'm not gonna bore you with every historical fact we could pull out of Daniel chapter eleven, but let me give you a few. In verses two through six, there are four future rulers that are introduced: Cyrus, Smyrdus, Darius the First, and Xerxes the first. Yes, Xerxes Esther's husband, who invaded Greece. In verse 6, we learn of Ptolemy II's attempt to ease tensions between the northern and the southern kingdom by sending his daughter Bernice to be married to the ruler of the north. And then that union could produce offspring that would unite the two kingdoms. But unfortunately, Antiochus II was already married, and his wife, whom he was planning on divorcing, had both Bernice and her husband poisoned to death so that the rain would not be threatened. In verses 7 through 9, we learn of Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, and his invasion of the north in revenge for his sister's death. In verses 10 through 13, the fighting continues into the next generation of leadership, and it all culminates in verse 21 in the appearance of what we have come to know as the little horn, the little horn of chapter 8, Antiochus IV, who illegitimately seizes power and takes his anger and his frustration out on God's people, a subject that we will return to in a moment. We could go on and on, putting names to these kings, putting dates to these events, bringing clarity to the specifics of Daniel chapter 11, all this detail. Why? Well, I think that Yahweh is indeed flexing His prophetic muscles here before his people, because he wants his people to remember that he knows. He knows the big picture. He knows the details of what is coming. He knows the beginning from the end. With Yahweh, there are no surprises. It's that same feeling that our our kids get, or that you got when you were their age, when When you inform your parents of something, kids, you know, have done this before. You inform your parents of of some danger that you see, that you want to make sure that they see. Mom, dad, I got to tell you something. And how do your parents respond? They say, honey, son, daughter, I, I know. I know. I see it. I'm aware. And it doesn't take the danger away, right? The danger is still there, but you have that assurance that someone knows and that someone much more capable than you is able to take care and to do what is necessary. Remember the heavenly messenger who delivered this message. Upon delivery of the vision in chapter 10, verse 19, he told Daniel specifically Fear not. Fear not because God knows. God knows and He is the author. He is the script writer and and certainly herein lies mystery. Because one of the things that we see here is that man, according to verse 3 specifically, that man is doing as he wills. Man is acting out of the evil of his own heart out of the selfishness of his own heart, and yet he is responsible for his actions while he pursues his power, while he wreaks havoc on God's people, while he chases the wind and the vanity. Through it all, God knows, and God is sovereign. You see, this simple simple fact would have been a balm to Israel's souls. It would have answered all their questions. It certainly wasn't the script that they wanted written for them. They wanted to be restored in the land immediately in this generation. We want to see it. We want to see the temple in all its glory. We want to see your name proclaimed from Jerusalem as it should be. And the Lord says, not yet, not now. There's a lot coming, but I know. meant something to God's people. Does it mean something to you? Not so much the richness of ancient history that we find here in these pages. I'm not saying does that history mean something to you, but does the reassurance that there are no surprises for your heavenly Father, does that mean something to you? Amidst a world of careless tweets, amidst a world of Kim Jong-un's threats, amidst the anger of an expelled student in Florida, the instability of your work, the unsettledness of your own heart, the physical and relational pain that you are experiencing right now as you sit in that chair, it's no surprise to your Father and His words to Daniel in chapter 10, verse 19, are His words to His people today, Oh, you who are greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And we're here this morning, we've already declared it to our own hearts, we're here this morning because God showed His love and care for you in the fullest expression that He could by sending His Son Jesus to bleed and die that you might have life in His name. And in spite of appearances, that death of His Son on the cross, that wasn't a surprise either. No, that was the fulfillment of a promise that God made all the way back in the garden to the face of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And while that sacrifice on the cross did not remove, and it doesn't remove all brokenness from us, it did take away the sting. And it does remind us daily that God has not forgotten His people there are no surprises, and your heavenly Father is out only for your good. I think that's what this ancient history proclaims, and that leads us to the second truth that I want us to see this morning, and it's this. God's view of history has His people at its center. God's view of history has His people at its center. This whole chapter is riddled with the instability that God's people are powerless to stop. I mean, this is a long history. This is hundreds and hundreds. Those 35 verses or 34 verses that I read this morning, those are hundreds of years of history. And it's an exercise in futility. At the end of the day, it all goes nowhere. Daniel doesn't need to know the names of these rulers because they're hardly remembered. They're forgotten, like chaff in the wind. In the midst of all this instability, verse 4, his kingdom shall be broken and divided. Verse 6, she will not hold on. Speaking of Bernice, verse 12, he will not remain strong. Verse 19, he will stumble and fall. In the midst of all this instability, in the midst of all of this vanity, God's people are stuck in the middle. Literally, geographically, they're stuck in the middle. And yet, through it all, we are reminded where history is headed. God is interested in a remnant. He's interested in his people. He's interested in a people faithful to him, set apart for his pleasure, and he is preserving them and pursuing them and writing a story of redemption across human history and all of its vanity and all of its instability and all of its rising and falling. And as Antiochus IV comes on the scene, especially in verse 29 when he turns his anger towards God's people. We see this people suffering and yet standing firm. He will plunder the temple. We've already talked about him, the little horn of chapter 8. He will plunder God's people. He will desecrate the temple He will kill something like 80,000 men, women, and children. We read at the end of verse 32, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. God's people will not just stand by, but they will trust that God has not forgotten them, and they will hold firm. Now, historically, this refers to the Maccabean Revolt, when the Jews rebelled, when they fought against the prohibitions that were placed upon them, and many did so to their own death. It was a fight that was difficult. It was a fight that was costly, and it didn't bring about the kingdom. That much is clear. But it was a stand that honored God and one that He was graciously at work at because God had not forgotten His people. Verse 35, some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. God is at work. While there is no surprises for God on the stage of human history, there is still a faithful living that God's people are called to. The Lord is preparing a people for what is to come. I was just sent an article this week by one of you about a church in Michigan under fire for offering a Bible-based workshop for teenage kids who are struggling with sexual questions of the day. You see, the Bible's teaching on gender and on sexuality is a threat to the spirit of our age. And that spirit will fight to silence it, but God's people must not be silent. We must not be surprised when our teaching is increasingly at odds with the culture around us. God has not forgotten about us. We are at the center of history. And Paul reminded the church in 1 Peter 4 to not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you, which makes Jesus' words in Matthew 10 required memorization. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. See, when God's people find themselves out of step with the culture, out of step with the world in which we live, It need not be cause for despair, but reason to return to the promises of his word. Namely, that history is not this meaningless chaos, but that his people are his utmost concern. And God will take as long as it takes. And that's what I want to close with. See, from our perspective, this, and from, certainly from Daniel's generation's perspective, this view of history is long. It's long. But from God's perspective, from He who is infinite and eternal, for, for He who a thousand years is as a day, It's actually His patient longing for those who are His own that stands at the center. 2 Peter 3, 9, a verse many of you know well, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, I think in a passage filled with ancient history from a faraway land, I think the message to us, brothers and sisters, is that in the struggle, in your struggle, don't despair, but rejoice again in who you are Rejoice once again in the one who by His grace has made you His own. There are no surprises. And you are at the center of the story that He is writing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning once again for the truth of Your Word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that You would take that which is helpful, that which is needful for Your people, and apply it to their lives. Let it sink deeply in their hearts. And that which is worthy of being forgotten, oh Father, let it be forgotten as they go from this place as sons and daughters seeking to live faithfully before the King. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.